Chapter Three, Part Two of Popular History of Ireland, Book Twelve by Thomas Darcy McGee, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Three, Part Two, Administration of the Duke of Richmond, eighteen o seven to eighteen thirteen. In the administrative changes that followed, Mister Peel, though only in his twenty-fourth year, was appointed to the important post of Chief Secretary, the son of the first baronet of the name. This youthful statesman had first been elected for Cashel almost as soon as he came of age in 1809. He continued chief secretary for six years, from the twenty-fourth to the thirtieth year of his age. He distinguished himself in the House of Commons almost as soon as he entered it, and the predictions of his future premiership were not, even then, confined to the members of his own family. No English statesman, since the death of William Pitt, has wielded so great a power in Irish affairs as Sir Robert Peel and it is, therefore, important to consider under what influence and by what maxims he regulated his public conduct during the time he filled the most important administrative office in the country. Sir Robert Peel brought to the Irish government, notwithstanding his Oxford education and the advantages of foreign travel which he had enjoyed, prejudices the most illiberal, on the subject of all others, on which a statesman should be most free from prejudice, religion. An anti-Catholic of the school of Mr. Percival and Lord Eldon, he at once constituted himself the principal opponent of Grattan's annual motion in favour of Catholic emancipation, that older men, born in the evil time, should be bigots and defenders of the penal code, was hardly wonderful, but a young statesman, exhibiting at that late day such studied and active hostility to so large a body of his fellow-subjects, naturally drew upon his head the execrations of all those whose enfranchisement he stubbornly resisted. Even his great abilities were the most absurdly denied, under this passionate feeling of wrong and injustice. His constabulary and his stipendiary magistracy were resisted, ridiculed, and denounced, as outrages on the liberty of the subject, and assaults on the independence of the bench. The term peeler became synonymous with spy, informer, and traitor, and the chief secretary was detested not only for the illiberal sentiments he had expressed, but for the machinery of order he had established. After half a century's experience, we may safely say that the Irish constabulary have shown themselves to be a most valuable police, and as little deserving of popular ill-will as any such body can ever expect to be, but they were judged very differently during the secretaryship of their founder, for at that time, being new and intrusive, they may, no doubt, have deserved many of the hard and bitter things which were generally said of them. The first session of the new Parliament in the year 1813, the last of the Duke of Richmond's viceroyalty, was remarkable for the most important debate which had yet arisen on the Catholic question. In the previous year, a motion of Canning's in favour of a final and conciliatory adjustment, which was carried by an unexpected majority of 235 to 106, encouraged Grattan to prepare a detailed emancipation bill, instead of making his usual annual motion of referring the Catholic petitions to the consideration of the committee. This bill recited the establishment of the Protestant secession to the crown, and the establishment of the Protestant religion in the state. It then proceeded to provide that Roman Catholics might sit and vote in Parliament, might hold all offices, civil and military, except the offices of Chancellor or Keeper of the Great Seal in England, or Lord Lieutenant, Lord Deputy, or Chancellor of Ireland. Another section threw open to Roman Catholics all lay corporations, while a proviso excluded them from either holding or bestowing offices in the established church. Such was the Emancipation Act of 1813, proposed by Grattan, 
an act far less comprehensive than introduced by the same statesman in 1795 into the Parliament of Ireland, but still in many of its provisions a long stride in advance. Restricted and conditioned as this measure was, it still did not meet the objections of the opponents of the question, in giving the Crown a veto in the appointment of the bishops. Sir John Hipsley's pernicious suggestion, reviving a very old traditional policy, was embodied by Canning in one set of amendments, and by Castlereagh in another. Canning's amendments, as summarized by the eminent Catholic jurist Charles Butler, were to this effect. He first appointed a certain number of commissioners, who were to profess the Catholic religion, and to be lay peers of Great Britain or Scotland, possessing a freehold estate of one thousand pounds a year, to be filled up from time to time by His Majesty, his heirs or successors. The commissioners were to take an oath for the faithful discharge of their office, and the observance of secrecy in all matters not thereby required to be disclosed, with power to appoint a secretary with salary, proposed to be five hundred pounds a year, payable out of the consolidated fund. The secretary was to take an oath similar to that of the commissioners. It was then provided that every person elected to the discharge of Roman Catholic Episcopal functions in Great Britain or Scotland should, previously to the discharge of his office, notify his then election to the secretary, that the secretary should notify it to the commissioners, and they to the privy council, with a certificate that they did not know or believe anything of the person nominated, which tended to impeach his loyalty or peaceable conduct, unless they had knowledge of the contrary, in which case they should refuse their certificate. Persons obtaining such a certificate were rendered capable of exercising Episcopal functions within the United Kingdom. If they exercised them without a certificate, they were to be considered guilty of a misdemeanor, and liable to be sent out of the kingdom. Similar provisions respecting Ireland were then introduced. The second set of clauses, says Mr. Butler, was suggested by Lord Castlereagh, and provided that the commissioners under the preceding clauses, with the addition as to Great Britain of the Lord Chancellor, or Lord Keeper, or First Commissioner of the Great Seal for the time being, and one of His Majesty's principal secretaries of state, being a Protestant, or such other Protestant member of his Privy Council as His Majesty should appoint, and with a similar addition in respect to Ireland, and with the further addition, as to Great Britain, of the person then exercising Episcopal functions among the Catholics in London, and in respect to Ireland, of the titular Roman Catholic Archbishops of Armagh and Dublin, should be commissioners for the purposes thereinafter mentioned. The commissioners thus appointed were to take an oath for the discharge of their office, and observance of secrecy, similar to the former, and employ the same secretary, three of them were to form a quorum. The bill then provided that subjects of His Majesty, receiving any bull, dispensation, or other instrument, from the See of Rome, or any persons in foreign parts, acting under the authority of that See, should, within six weeks, send a copy of it, signed with his name, to the secretary of the commissioners, who should transmit the same to them. But with a proviso, that if the person receiving the same should deliver to the secretary of the commission, within the time before prescribed, a writing under his hand, certifying the fact of his having received such a bull, dispensation, or other instrument, and accompanying his certificate with an oath, declaring that it related wholly and exclusively to spiritual concerns, and that it did not contain or refer to any matter or thing which did or could, directly or indirectly, affect or interfere with the duty and allegiance which he owed to His Majesty's sacred person and government, or with the temporal, civil, or social rights, properties, or duties of any other of His Majesty's subjects, then the commissioners were, in their discretion, to receive such certificate and oath, 
in lieu of a copy of the bull, dispensation, or other instruments. Persons conforming to these provisions were to be exempted from all pains and penalties, to which they would be liable under the existing statutes. Otherwise they were to be deemed guilty of a high misdemeanor, and in lieu of the pains and penalties under the former statutes, be liable to be sent out of the kingdom. The third set of clauses provided that, within a time to be specified, the commissioners were to meet and appoint their secretary, and give notice of it to His Majesty's principal secretaries of state in Great Britain and Ireland, and the provisions of the act were to be enforced from that time. On the second reading, in May, the Committee of Parliament, on motion of the Speaker, then on the floor, struck out the clause enabling Catholics to sit and vote in either House of Parliament, by a majority of four votes, 251 against 247. Mr. Ponsonby immediately rose, and observing that, as the bill without the clause was unworthy both of the Catholics and its authors, he moved the chairman do leave the chair. The committee rose without a division, and the Emancipation Bill of 1813 was abandoned. Unhappily, the contest in relation to the veto, which had originated in the House of Commons, was extended to the Catholic body at large. Several of the noblemen, members of the board, were not adverse to granting some such power as was claimed to the crown. Some of the professional class, more anxious to be emancipated than particular as to the means, favoured the same view. The bishops at the time of the Union were known to have entertained the idea, and Sir John Hipsley had published their letters, which certainly did not discourage his proposal. But the second order of the clergy, the immense majority of the laity, and all the new prelates, called to preside over the vacant sees, in the first decade of the century, were strongly opposed to any such connection with the head of the state. Of this party, Mr. O'Connell was the uncompromising organ, and perhaps it was his course on this very subject of the veto, more than anything else, which established his pretensions to be considered the leader of the Catholic body. Under the prompting of the majority, the Catholic prelates met and passed a resolution declaring that they could not accept the Bill of 1813 as a satisfactory settlement. This resolution they formally communicated to the Catholic board, who voted them, on O'Connell's motion, enthusiastic thanks. The minority of the board were silent rather than satisfied, and their dissatisfaction was shown rather by their absence from the board meetings than by open opposition. Mr. O'Connell's position from this period forward may be best understood from the tone which he was spoken of in the debates of Parliament. At the beginning of the session of 1815, we find the Chief Secretary, Mr. Peel, stating that he possesses more influence than any other person with the Irish Catholics, and that no meeting of that body was considered complete, unless a vote of thanks to Mr. O'Connell was among the resolutions. End of chapter 3, part 2. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.